I just have a couple of thoughts as we move towards communion this morning. And uh, we've done things a little bit different this time around. I think Bob mentioned it, but uh, we are not breaking in the middle of the service to do the foot washing. We tried to announce it last week that we were going to do it before, uh, before the service. But um, if you didn't get a chance to do that, we will also have the space available for you to do it after church service for those of you who still want to be able to do that. So let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are eternally thankful, um, not just because we get to celebrate communion, but for what it means. And so as we reflect and as we think about what it means that you gave your life for us and what it means that you've forgiven us, um, it's our prayer that you would teach us the deeper things of, of what that looks like in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. How many of you like to make to-do lists? Do you? I like to make to-do lists. I make one every morning. And, um, but for how many of you, when you've made a to-do list in the beginning of the day, you end up with an even longer to-do list by the time your day's over? Does that ever happen to you? And it's almost like you still have the same 10 things and then you added seven more things. And so sometimes life can feel completely overwhelming and hectic. And I know especially for some of you, um, your jobs are very stressful. And I mean, I think for some of us, this is what it looks like to have to do so many things, right? We have to remind ourselves. But what we know is that the more things that we have to do, the harder it is, not, just, well, not only to get them done, but to feel peace to be able to feel at rest. And even if you leave your job at the workplace and you go home, if you have so many things to get done, it's really hard to be able to rest. Because even though you're home, you know that tomorrow you have to get back to the office and pick up right where you left off. And not only do you have to pick up where you left off, but there's gonna be a ton of other things that are added. And so what ends up happening is this is, leads to stress, right? We are pulled in so many different directions. Now, it might be okay if it's just our work, but for many of you, you have work, you have children, you have church, right? Some of you are really involved in the church, you know, doing so many different things, right? So we live in a world where we are being constantly pulled in so many different directions. But this isn't a new thing. Technology isn't doing this to us. 2016 isn't doing this to us, but rather, this has been a problem that has been around, that has been around for a long time. And so this morning, I want us to look at a story as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion. And so Jesus addresses this. And this is how the story goes. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus and his disciples, he, Jesus, entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So I'm going to just pause here for a second. And yes, we know that most of you have probably heard this story. Most of you have read this story so many times that you don't even have to read it again because you're so well aware of the details. But I think that sometimes it's part of the problem that we know stories in the Bible so well that we just seem to gloss over them. And this morning what I want us to do is just spend a few moments looking at what's actually going on in this story so we have two sisters. We have Martha and we have Mary. Two sisters with two very different sets of priorities, with two different stories. So on the one hand, the Bible tells us that Mary, she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. 
So the first thing we want to look at, and, and we always want to give uh, you know, pro, uh, credit to Jesus, Jesus always broke so many different rules. Now, where was the woman's place in the first century? In the kitchen, right? Cooking, cleaning, doing laundry. I know some of you guys still think women should be there, but it's a little bit different world. Yeah, but women weren't, but women, that was their place in the first century. They didn't have social standing. You know in the Bible when Jesus says that he preached to 5,000 uh, men? Notice it says men in the Bible. It doesn't actually say women and children as well. Because men were the only people that were really valued in that society. So for someone to sit at the feet of Jesus, it was only his disciples that would have sat at the feet of the rabbi. The 12 men that followed Jesus around, it was really only them that would have been allowed to sit so close in proximity to Jesus. Because a rabbi would travel with his disciples. So here's one of the first things that we begin to see in this story is that Jesus allows women to sit at his feet, not to serve him, but so that he can serve them by delivering his word of grace and of hope and his message of truth. So the first thing that we see in this story is that Jesus doesn't turn away anyone from his message which is why when we pass around the bread and the, and the juice in just a few moments, I will say the words that we do not refuse the body and the blood of Christ to anyone because Jesus didn't refuse it to anyone. And so what we find is that, G, is that Mary, being in the presence of Jesus, she knows who this man is. She knows what he's capable of. She knows how good and gracious Jesus is that instead of doing any of the other things, instead of filling her gender roles, she instead sits at the feet of Jesus because she knows that there is life that comes from this man. We don't know who taught her this about Jesus because the disciples wouldn't even understand who Jesus was until after Jesus was resurrected. But there was something, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit that teaches Mary that no matter all of the other things that are going on around in her life, the most important thing for her to do, the best investment of her time isn't cooking, isn't cleaning, but it's being at the foot of Jesus. So that's Mary. On the other hand, we have Martha. And the Bible tells us that she was distracted by many things. And the word that's used in the Greek actually means that she is being pulled or dragged in many directions. And as we started this message, I think that many of you can really relate to being pulled and dragged in so many different directions. Now the problem isn't that Mary was doing hospitality type work. So the problem wasn't that she was cooking, it's that she was distracted from the one person who could change her life. She was doing all these other things, but she broke protocol because I think it's in the next verse. Like, so she was being hospitable, but she says she came to, to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Yeah, we all like that person, right? I mean, she basically, and this is what the commentators will say, she's accusing Jesus of not caring. I think you can accuse other people of not caring, but I don't think you're allowed to accuse Jesus of not caring. You see, it wasn't that she was being hospitable, but the problem was is that she wasn't being hospitable in the right way. She wasn't giving attention to the presence of Jesus. She was more worried about trying to gain affection 
or, or trying to fulfill her role so that people would look and see Martha is the good sister. She's the one that's doing what she's supposed to. What's wrong with Mary? She's being lazy. But the true essence of hospitality was to make the guest feel welcomed, and instead, Martha confronts Jesus. You see, she missed the point of what it means to have Jesus in her life. I think sometimes as religious people, we tend to do that as well. I think as religious people, sometimes we can read the Bible and completely miss the message of Jesus. And some of you are saying, well, that's impossible. But you see, if you're reading the Bible, even if you get through the whole Bible, but the Holy Spirit isn't changing the way you live, then you've misread the entire Bible. If you're reading the Bible just to go and prove other people wrong, you're misusing how the Bible was meant to be used. Now, this isn't just David Oseguera in 2016 saying this. Jesus actually says that. He tells the, re the religious people, so like us, he says, you read the Bible because you think that through them you will find life. But the one who gives you life is standing right in front of you and you do not see him. You see, the only way that the Bible is going to render this gift of goodness is if you realize that the Bible is about God's love and how God's love is made perfect in the person of Jesus. You see, Martha knew all of the stuff, but Martha was neglecting to realize that instead of all the things that had to get done, what was most important and the first thing she should worry about was being in the presence of Jesus, just like her sister. So when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, he says, there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha failed to receive the gracious presence of Jesus, to listen to his words. You see, she thought that her value came from the things that she her value doesn't come from all of the things that she was doing well, but her value comes from the one who loves her. Her value comes by being a child of God. You know, in a culture of hectic schedules and the relentless pursuit of more, we are tempted to measure our worth by how much we can do, right? Everything we do, we try to justify ourselves in this world. Right? You try to do all of the right things for your husband or wife because you want them to keep loving you. Now, maybe you wouldn't say that or verbalize it, but that's why most of you are doing what you're doing to make the other person happy. Because you have to justify and show that you are worthy of their love. When you go to work, most of you try to work extra or go the extra step, right? Because you want to be able to justify that your job needs you. When you're in school and you're studying, the more you study, you study because you want to justify that you can earn that A in the exam or on the paper. You see, the world lives by the value system of Martha. The more I do, the more I can produce, the better I can do things, then I will be valued and my existence will be justified. But that's not the way of the scriptures. The way of the biblical worldview is not that the more you can do, the better you become, but the more you spend time with the one who gives life. It is, is a result of that close relationship in the presence of Christ where you find true and meaningful and valuable life. 
And it's true that so many of the busyness and distractions of our lives, we do those with good intentions, right? If you have children, you want to provide your children with better opportunities, and sometimes you feel like that the only way that can happen is by working those extra hours because you want to provide for that better education or the tutors, right? We think that the, sometimes there's good things that pull us and, and distract us, but the thing is that sometimes the good things can get in the way of the truly great thing, which is the presence of Jesus, but there are so many of us like Martha today where we think it's more important to do to gain our value. But in reality, value is gained by listening and being in the presence of Jesus. And here's the thing. Some of you are saying, well, but pastor, you don't know. You don't know the bills that I have. You don't know the payments that I have to make. You don't know how my children have been acting in school. You don't know how my wife has been treating me or how my husband has been treating, been treating me. You don't know what I have to go through, and the truth is, is that I probably don't. But what I can tell you, and what I've been called to do through this ministry, is to preach to you the words that we find in Scripture, so that you might be able to find hope. Jesus, and, and Jesus has a word for this in Matthew six twenty-seven. He says, "How many? How can any of you, by worrying a single hour, wait, what? By worrying, add a single hour to your span of life." All worry does is make you worry more. Worry never actually makes anything better, right? Worry gets in the way of eating because sometimes we, you know, we don't want to eat when we're worried. That's maybe just me. <laughs> You're like, whoa, pastor doesn't worry very much then. <laughs> I do worry. I, I just power through and eat anyway. We see that Jesus says, look, Worrying isn't going to add any time to your life. Instead, it's only going to feel like time is dragging by slowly because you keep holding on to the things that aren't bringing you life. And so one of the ways, one of the solutions to this is found in Psalm 46. And this is what we're going to end with as we make our way towards communion. But the psalmist writes that God is our refuge and our strength. The refuge is the place you go to when you need safety. A refuge is a place where you go when you need to get away from everything and everyone else. And the psalmist says that God is our refuge and our strength. He does, it doesn't say he makes us strong, but rather we get to hide in the strength of Christ. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, we will not fear. And the antidote to this is very simply this. Verse 10, 10 tells us, Be still and know that I am God. This is what Mary knew. Mary knew that all she had to do was sit in the presence of the one who gives life. Mary knew what Martha failed to recognize. Mary knew that if she only sat at the foot and if she spent time in the presence of Jesus, that her life would be set on the trajectory that it needed to go. Because when you have that connection to Jesus, everything else will take care of itself. Doesn't mean everything will be perfect. Please don't, you know, life is still going to be difficult. Like, that's just normal. 
Right? We don't get here to pretend like life is perfect. We gather here because we know that life is not perfect, but we have hope in the God who can do amazing things and can do miraculous things. We gather here because we give honor and worship to the God who will one day put an end to all of the bad and evil in our lives. But we don't need that to happen now for us to continue to have faith in the love and the presence and providence of this God. And when we come to communion, and Bob's going to lead us through a couple of minutes of that, but as we come to communion, it is a symbol, right? It's just bread and it's just grape juice, 100% grape juice, probably, I don't know. <laughs> only, only the best for Jesus. <laughs> it's just bread and it's just juice. The bread, well, they make it from scratch. Uh, Darlene makes it for us. Very, very good. Thank you. And the juice, we just go to the store and we buy it. They're symbols. They're symbols that point to a deeper reality of the love of Christ, that he has seen you and he has accepted you as good enough just as you are because Jesus has done the hard work of overcoming sin. So this whole message of being in the presence of God, we relive that in a special way on communion Sabbath because it is on this day where we are reminded that all we need is Jesus in our lives. And the, as the scriptures tell us, though the mountains shake, though the whole earth fall apart, though Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump are elected president in November, whichever one, right? Who cares? Because we have a king of the universe who isn't that interested in that. Amen. Jesus is not interested in that because he is more interested in you and how you will live in this earth. Now, if you're a guest and you're like, whoa, why did he just bring up politics? If you look over the last couple of months worth of sermons, we've addressed the role of Christians in this, in this time and in this place. And we believe we don't have to worry about all of that stuff. We don't have to worry about the fear. We don't have to worry about any of that because we have Jesus in our lives. And as long as we have Jesus, God will lead us every step of the way. And we will get through these presidencies as we have gotten through all the other ones. Because we know that it is all about what Jesus is calling you to do, which is to be a blessing and to be of service, and to be generous, and to lift him up everywhere you go. And it doesn't matter who's voted at that point, because our job will remain the same. Amen. At this moment, I'd like to have, um, I, I've asked Bob to prepare a couple of moments for us as we prepare for communion. Uh, thank you for that, Pastor. That was a moving message, and one thing about communion Sabbath, it's, it's a solemn time. This is not a, a lighthearted Sabbath be, intentionally because it is a communion Sabbath. Why do we do communion? We do communion because our Lord and Savior instructed us to do it. Do this in memory of me. And what I love about the Adventist church is we do it regularly, but not that often, so it doesn't lose its significance. A lot of churches do it every service, by the way, and it, it, it'll lose its significance. But what does it mean? What, what, is, what is communion all about? Well, as we know, is when Christ sat down the day before he was crucified and broke, broke bread and shared wine with his disciples and said, this is my body, this is my blood, which will be given up for you. 
It speaks of the cross. And the cross is the singularly most important thing that happened in the Bible. Without the cross, the Bible is a meaningless book of riddles. The cross is the central issue that brings us all here. And it is the theme throughout the entire Bible. When you start in Genesis, right after perfectly created mankind sins, God is there with the solution. And he tells us, my son will come. We understood that later. I'm sure Adam and Eve didn't get it. But he said, my son will come and he will, he will resolve this. And why, why did we have to have that? Because sin separates us from God. Each one of us is sinful. We are born in sin. We live in sin. God put all the chips on the table and he said, I will, I will save mankind and humankind by having my son take on human flesh, become one of us, live a perfect life, and die on the cross. And by that death, pay for every sin that was ever committed. Now, if you read the Bible chronologically, you'll go through the Old Testament, you see the momentum building for the, for the Savior, the coming Savior, and it's repeated throughout. But the first huge symbol of that was at Passover when God said, take a perfect lamb, put its blood on the door, the blood of the lamb will save you. Now, did they follow all the laws? Laws weren't even here yet. Did they tithe? Did they go to church every Sabbath? They trusted in the blood of the lamb. Then when Christ comes on the scene, what does John the Baptist say when he lays eyes on him? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when you look to the Old Testament, Isaiah did a great job at keeping this theme going throughout, but Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with, him, and with his wounds we are healed. We are, we, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before the shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There is not a better description of the gospel and the role of Christ than that and, and the role of communion. So as we get to the Gospels, each one of them is a journey of Christ to the cross. It is the cross that saved us. And it is so important to understand that, that there is nothing you can do to save yourself other than get on your knee at the foot of that cross and accept what your Lord and Savior has done for you. It, many churches believe that the cross is some kind of ticket in and now you have to show that you're worthy by how well you live and how well you do. That is heresy. The, you are saved by the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb alone. So when Christ sat with his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me, he wanted us to constantly go back to the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then of course he brought us the greatest prophet of all time, I mean the greatest theologian of all time, Paul. And let's go to Romans 6 starting at verse 5, 
And Paul explains it very well. For if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see how solemn and important this is because it is our sin that put Christ on that cross. And it is his love for us and his desire to take that sin from us to give us good standing with him. The cross was the great exchange. Christ not only took all of our sins upon him to make your slate clean, he gave to you his perfect life, that you could go to heaven and stand before the throne in his righteousness because of the act he did that we will solemnly reflect on now. Thank you. I'm going to ask the deacons now to come up to the front. And uh, the way that we'll do it this morning, um, the, the deacons and uh, offer you the bread and the juice. And as I said before, we, we don't refuse it to anyone. And um, especially if you have children, I would encourage you to uh, begin to teach them what it means. And I know when I was growing up, we were only allowed to have a little bit. <laughs> um, I guess we weren't allowed the full version of Jesus. But... Um, so that's why I say, please begin to teach your children about it. And, and, and of course, it's not going to make all the sense to them because they're probably too young to fully comprehend what it means that Jesus laid down his life for them. But I promise you that if you get them used to this idea, it will stick with them. And so please do this for your children as well. So we are going to have them hand out the bread and the juice, and then Bob and I will lead you through the eating of the bread and drinking of the juice.